The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. listening to Making Life Brighter on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, where we provide you with the latest information in natural healing, consciousness training, and all cutting-edge healing modalities, featuring experts in their field, including authors, musicians, and artists. Making Life Brighter is your forum for healing, inspiring, and uplifting entertainment. Here is your host, Winifred Adams. And we're back. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and I'm here today with Howard Riley, and we are looking over beautiful Mirror Lake in Lake Placid, New York, looking out at all the gorgeous fall colors and uh, all the mountains behind where today they opened up, I think it's Mount Hovenberg. Is that the correct way to say that? That's correct. And they have the bobsled going down today, and, and they're getting ready for their team trials. And we were talking with Howard about his book and the history of Saranac Lake, and he was telling us about the taxis and the trains, and we're going to continue on with that because this is fascinating. Right. There was so many trains that the population up here uh, between the three communities probably was not more than 30,000, but the number of people coming and going because of the tuberculosis industry I was talking about before. So many people had relatives here curing of TB, uh, some famous people and then some infamous people like Legs Diamond used to come up. He was a well-known gangster at the time, but his brother was curing a TB, so there's stories about him, and I think there's a story about him in, in my book. <clears throat> but the point of all the trains coming and going for a town of, and when I say 10,000, I'm sort of including the patients and temporary people uh, that just came to live in Saranac Lake while their relatives were curing. But it, it and, of course, a lot of people were dying of TB then, although as a kid growing up here, I wasn't conscious of that part of it, even though I'd been a tray boy carrying trays up to bedridden people who could not get up. They were so sick. We'd carry trays up to their food and carry them back down when they were finished and all that. Did you ever worry about getting that and, and contracting it in any no, way? No, nobody did. We used to pick up. There was a women all over town did laundry for uh patients or we'd pick up the dirty laundry and 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 we were 12 13 years old then and uh it's so funny nobody ever and i never heard of anybody maybe two people in my whole growing up years that lived in sarnic lake of getting tb and uh, whether we became immune to it because we're in the center of it yeah picking up dirty dishes and and that's i'm, I'm getting off the track no no pun about the railroad but uh <laughs> we had a we had a huge laundry <laughs> For a small town <laughs> with these red and silver trucks and uh two of them the other one was called the silver laundry and uh, back then when they didn't plow the streets that's where a lot of guys got to school because they knew the routes of all these laundry trucks which were going all the time so they just squat down and hang on to the back bumper and the, they knew the trucks that went by the school they just get along on their on their feet 
until I got near the school and let go of the bumper because the trucks didn't go very fast. <laughs> but with all of the trains coming in and so many sick people, there was three funeral homes for this small town. And uh, maybe this was right, but the, I used to hear that they, uh, the hearses to bring the bodies to the train station would always do it at night because they didn't want just the residents going by all the time with these hearses backed up to the train. And that's probably right because I don't remember many hearses being at the train station. And we sort of hung out there because I said that was the airport of of today. I mean, uh, there was a newsstand and magazines and people in there all the time. It was just an interesting place to be, to watch the people getting in and off the train. And, of course, I'm talking free TV and all that, so there's... That was a real entertainment center for us. I don't know if this can go on the radio station, but you know, they have all sorts of magazines now with Playboy and that. But one day the guy caught us, there was one called Sunshine and Health, and it was a health magazine. And we thought, that, I mean, it showed people playing tennis, all it showed was their backs, you know, without, but we thought well, that was the raciest thing we'd ever seen with <laughs> Sunshine and Health. <laughs> and anyway, that's what I remember too about the train station. Um, so the other part of growing up there, of course, as, the, as they found a cure for TB, uh, the industry shut down. They called an industry. It's a strange term, probably. And then the Trudeau family, uh, Dr. Trudeau, who was the founder, his son and grandson were both MDs. And then his great-grandson, as I said, was Gary Trudeau, who draws the strip Doonesbury, didn't need to become a doctor. He was probably rich before he, he started drawing that strip when he was at Yale. And he was probably wealthy before he uh, got out of college. And I said, I liken it to myself, but I don't know what happened to me because I write a weekly column just like his and I get $100 a week. And that's probably what he gets for each column, but he happens to be in like 4,000 newspapers. So uh, <laughs> that's the way it works. It's all relative, right? Right, right. <laughs> I wish he was my relative. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so tell us about what it was like that was, um, you, you likened in, in the book about Mark Twain, and you had stories about Mark Twain growing up, and here you are in the middle of seemingly nowhere then. And to have people that don't know what this region is like, it's, it's a mountainous region with lakes and lakes and lakes, and it's pristine wilderness, and there's small communities within that, and it's very cold in the wintertime. It's like easily 10 degrees, 30 below zero at times with wind chill and all that. This is not an easy place to live, but it's gorgeous. Yeah, well, that, uh, from, from leaving the farm and then moving into, into Saranac Lake, uh, of course, when it does get even sometimes 30 below without the wind chill, and uh, we call it square tire morning, because when your car is parked outside and that flat part of the tire is resting on the ground, the first mile or so you drive it, that stays flat, and it just bumps and bumps. You'd think all four tires are flat, so they call it, you know, flat, you know. Anyway, because they're frozen into that shape, right. and it takes Most some... people don't know what that kind of cold is like. Yeah. It's the kind where your nostrils stick together because oh, it yeah. freezes them as you breathe in. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's absolutely your nostrils stick together, and we always kid about there's conversations that we hear in the spring because people start talking when it's so cold, the words just freeze in the air, and then when it thaws out in the spring, we can hear their conversation going. 
it. Well, that's probably true now. Yeah. They probably have it in some of the DNA traces of whatever they're doing. You know, they can read the energy of old paintings now, and they can hear what was being said in the room on account of the the matter in the paintings by Monet and people like that. They can they can pick up the emotion and whatever was going on. It's amazing what they're learning. So wow. I actually, <laughs> your probably, joke might be true. It might be true. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, so Mark Twain was uh, someone that took residence here periodically. And so tell us about that. Well, of course, I wasn't <clears throat> I wasn't here when he was here, but uh, there's so many stories. I love his stuff, and I've read a lot of it, and. He made a little references to Saranac Lake because there's also a, a Saranac, New York, spelled the same way. And there was a controversy over that way back because they both had post offices. And Mark Twain said, you can't get any damn mail here. There's 18 different places called Saranac Lake. Of course, a lot of his humor was in the exaggeration of things. And, uh you know, his cottage, I, I wrote something about that not more than a couple of weeks ago because, of course, his cottage has been restored. And then there was a philosopher's camp there. It's, there's a story in the book about that. I can't remember all of the names of, of the philosophers that came and stayed there, Thoreau and this. It, it, so it was, a, it was in a very, very unusual place. Some of the stories they liked best, I don't know if I made it, that made it to the book because... I have enough stories already published to make another book, and or to publish another book. And the one that the, probably the most famous of all was Einstein, who was Albert Einstein, the same famous physicist who stayed here. And uh, the jokes were he he loved to sail, but he was always out either it was tipping over or <laughs> probably you know. And, and uh, there was probably two people that helped rescue him or at least get him towed in. But of course, everybody you talk to now, there must have been at least. 4,000 people who rescued him from the water, you know, because you can't get people to build it. But when he came here, he was here, actually staying here when World War II ended. Uh, and I have a picture of him that was taken someplace, oh, it was, taken in a, it was in a magazine when he was becoming an American citizen. And the girl with him was his wife, but she was his cousin. And then the other one taking the oath with him was a housekeeper. But there's a little story about him. People always, he, he probably stayed five summers here, and, you know, people wanted to give him a cottage to live in or their house or something, Just but he wouldn't do that. He always wanted to rent his own, and there's a picture of him in one of the old copies of the Enterprise with his, uh, I think he and his wife are both sitting at a table, and the realtor is standing there, and Einstein is reading the contract to rent the house for the summer. And, uh, and the wife is saying to the realtor, I better read that because he's not very good at figures. <laughs> Most famous really? physicist in the world. <laughs> uh, but apparently he was quite well known around Saranac Lake at that time. And of course, I, I, didn't, know, I didn't even know in the summer of 19... 45 that he was here. I mean, that, I was 15 years old, and, and we'd lived the whole summer in what were called state camps up on the lake. I mean, lived, we just, because people's parents had these camps and permits, and, uh, you know, we'd have summer jobs, and we'd hitchhike back into town and go back out there. So he was probably staying in a place called Knollwood then, which is a camp owned by the Schultzbergers, who owned the New York Times. Uh, there's so many stories about all of those things. 
the sidebar to that one is, is that when they bought the property, probably in 1910 or 1902, I don't know that, like I said, that's in the book too, but I think they had five children, and they built five identical, they called them camps, they were beautiful houses, but rustic, you know, in, decorated in birch and everything. But the way they build things now, some things seem to take forever, but a local contractors, contractors by the name of Branch and Callahan, built those five houses, beautifully finished in less than a year, right side by side on the lake. Wow. Anyway, I think that's, that's not that's, easy to do in this weather no, either. And, and to really the machinery they have now and power tools and they used real hammers, you know, and real right. saws and stuff. But there's stuff like that that strike me that... Uh, wow, we must be doing something wrong. Well, it's definitely a different work ethic, and the people that lived up here had to survive up here, and they learned something different about it. And you know when you go to the Adirondack Museum, they, they showcase all that there. But we're going to be right back with more Howard Riley right here and his amazing stories, and we'll hear yet about Mark Twain coming up. Stay tuned to Making Life Brighter on Facebook. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want to make a difference in the world? Join Making Life Brighter Radio to help create a free roam sanctuary for elephants in South America. Finally, there's a working solution for elephants on our planet. People often say they don't know what to do to help animals that are in danger. But now you can team up with Making Life Brighter Radio and your host, Winifred Adams, to give elephants from Brazil and Argentina the freedom to roam in a wild sanctuary in a remote area of Brazil. Free to socialize, heal, and live the life they were always meant to live. Your contribution will build the fences and the elephant care center for the massive free roam sanctuary and set these sacred animals free. Donate today and mention you heard it on Making Life Brighter Radio. Listen to the amazing series live from Brazil, where Winifred speaks to CEO and board president of the Global Sanctuary for Elephants. To donate and for more information, log on to globalelephants.org. You voted show host Winifred Adams Writer of the Year for her Making Life Brighter Consciousness Columns, Entertainer of the Year two years running for her Making Life Brighter radio show, and Humanitarian of the Year for the third year running for her healing work and work at John of God. Medical intuitive and host of the Voice America Making Life Brighter radio show, Winifred Adams is your resource for wellness and consciousness training. A master healer for 20 years with a worldwide and celebrity clientele, Winifred uses her unique gifts to help those in need with physical, spiritual, and emotional ailments or trauma. Individuals and families may book private sessions in person or via Skype worldwide. Go to MakingLifeBrighter.com for more information. Enjoy Winifred's monthly articles with upwards of 30,000 fans. To buy music and subscribe to her Voice America radio show, visit iTunes worldwide. Follow along on Facebook at Making Life Brighter for her latest humanitarian effort to help move elephants in South America to a free roam sanctuary. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions, comments, or would like to make an appointment with medical intuitive Winifred Adams, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook at Making Life Brighter, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. Now back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and I'm your host, Winifred Adams, and I am here with Howard Riley, and we are enjoying the beautiful fall view of Mirror Lake and all the gorgeous mountains in the background at Lake Placid, New York. And Howard was the mayor of Saranac Lake, and in keeping with what I promised you all, I am doing a history of the Adirondacks and upstate New York, and this is another show yet with someone who's been here their entire lifetime almost and impacted this community far and wide. And he has a book to prove it called You Know What? A Selection of Commentaries by Howard Riley. And this is a history of Saranac Lake. Welcome, Howard. Thank you very much, Winifred. Um, It's fun being here with you. And uh, I'm very flattered that you wanted to interview me for this. I didn't realize I was so famous. (laughs) <laughs> and when people ask me, uh, I'm 86 years old. I was born here on a farm, and people ask me, have you lived here all your life? I get to say, not yet. So, uh, <laughs> Well, I have to just tell the listeners that how I met Howard stems from my interview with the Olympic athletes. And after I interviewed Savannah Graybill, who's a skeleton runner, she encouraged me to go over to the ice rink. And that's where I got to meet Howard, and he and I met standing there looking at the ice rink where the 1980 Olympic game had been won and by the U.S. and that was a really big deal and I told you before I think that my parents were there for that game and I was a kid watching on TV and it was a really really interesting thing but I was lucky enough to meet up with Howard at that point and we struck up a conversation that was very inspiring and you can see his intro to that entire explanation on Facebook. So just go to the Making Life Brighter Facebook page and you will find Howard's first-hand account of being there that day during the winning goal. And that's how we, we actually met. And then he told me he wrote a book. And lo and behold, not only did he write a book, but it included the lake that I grew up with on in the summertime and the Murder on Big Moose Lake, which was, you know, it's now been made into a movie with Elizabeth Taylor, A Place in the Sun, and history, 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 and Howard has history for us. So that's our background, but tell us how you grew up and how you got to Saranac Lake, Howard. Well, we grew up on a, it would describe as a hard scrabble farm on a place called Norman Ridge, which is about six miles north of Saranac Lake, New York. Uh, during the Depression, uh, people say to me that uh, 
my, when I tell my brothers and sisters, never, none of us ever had a broken bone or got hurt. And they said, we're surprised you didn't get hurt on all that farm machinery. I said, we didn't have any machinery. We had two mules and draft horses and, uh, and plows, but not anything mechanized. And uh, so anyway, we, we did not, it was the first farm that my father owned. He'd been a farm manager at big farms. Uh, and we had all kinds of animals, pigs and cows and chickens and everything you could think of. But the main crop was uh, potatoes. And I guess I say that funny. So we say <laughs> potatoes. Yeah, well, they were like 50 cents a bushel then. And uh, so it was, a, it was a tough life. But of course, not as far as not having enough food, because obviously we had all that. And the, and the house was heated with wood, but we had to draw water from the spring. And we had kerosene lamps that had to be filled and, and cleaned all the time. Um, but it was years later that I realized, I mean, how tough, there were really nine of us with my parents and my grandfather. And you imagine three meals a day and doing dishes, water it had to be, it was kept hot in a big reservoir at the end of the wood stove. But with that many people and that many meals and no running water and no electricity, when I think back on it, uh, it must have been terrible for my parents. Except that I can also remember some happy times when they had dances at at the house on like Saturday night. It's just like you read about or see in the movies. They'd roll back the car. Well, we didn't have any carpet, but they'd pull back the scatter rugs and and somebody bring a fiddle and someone else to play the piano and they'd have dances there uh, at different houses at different times. Um, but years later, and uh, I know my father was was, was kind of witty and. Uh, Years later, I wish I'd asked him a thousand other questions, but I, he bought this property from the Federal Land Bank. It had been repossessed, and uh, it was like 200 acres or 250 acres. I said the main crop was potatoes, and uh, we had maybe 13 cows and stuff, so it was a mixture of things uh, to make money. But years later, when I said to him, uh, well, Dad, what, like, what were the payments a month to the federal government on this farm and I said he looked at me sort of strangely for a couple minutes and he smiled and said I don't know I never made one <laughs> so that's exactly what it was there was enough money whatever he was supposed to pay them and then some we were probably there three and a half years and then some wealthy farmer bought the entire farm from the from the uh, from the federal land bank and we moved and dad managed another farm and then you said about growing up, so we finally moved to Cernak Lake, which the population was about 10,000 then. And uh, I, I started in a Catholic school. I'd been to one-room schoolhouse where there was eight grades, but there were not students in each grade. There was some, there was nobody at that age, so the one teacher would teach somebody in third grade for a while, and then somebody in seventh grade and stuff like that. So when I got to town, uh, I know I'd never been to a movie. I was 11 by then. I'd never been to a movie and never seen a black person. So I thought I had moved to New York City. That's the way it looked to me. <laughs> and what what did you, now that you've been there your whole life, uh, the rest of your life, what's the biggest change that you've seen take place for you? Well, Cernic Lake was founded by Dr. Edward Livingston Trudeau. He was a New York City physician who had gotten tuberculosis. 
and he started to come up summers to stay at a big resort where Paul Smith's College is located now. It was founded by Paul Smith, and it was a big hotel where a lot of the presidents from that era came and stayed. So Dr. Uh, Dr. Trudeau started to come up in the summertime to see if it would cure his tuberculosis, and he finally moved to Saranac Lake and built the huge sanitarium. It was his first tuberculosis sanitarium in the United States. And in Saranac Lake was world famous as a TB health resort. His great-grandson is Gary Trudeau, who draws Doonesbury. And I always tell people, if you've been around there as long as I have, I was at his wedding when he married Jane Pauley. But anyway, uh, so Saranac Lake's economy from, eight, it was incorporated in 1892 and Dr. Trudeau was the first mayor of the town, although the title was president then. They changed it later to mayor. But uh, so it was incorporated in 1892. I think he made it, gotten there around 1885. And, uh, and of course, people, TB was rampant in the United States then. And uh, as he started to build, his wealthy friends started to come up. They had people in their family who had tuberculosis and on the side of Mount Pisgah, right on the border of Sarnak Lake, like Park Avenue leads right to these, these big gates that went into the sanitarium, there was probably 70 buildings there, including a huge chapel, uh, not a huge chapel, a small chapel, but beautiful, and uh, an infirmary uh, where they did their own surgery and everything right at this tuberculosis hospital. So the point was, that was the entire economy of Sarnak Lake until they either through streptomycin or some other drug, it cured that strain of TB in the middle, in like in 1954. So the economy sort of collapsed. But before that, it wasn't just his sanitarium. There was a huge state sanitarium. There was another one in a place called Stonywall at Lake Kushikwa. Uh But in Saranac Lake was filled with these huge cure cottages, they were called where patients, Ernie Burnett, who wrote the song Sentimental Journey, stayed in one of them. And there was people you probably wouldn't know their names today that were stars in radio and movies. And a place called Will Rogers Memorial Hospital was built from uh, funds from the Actors Guild, the Actors Variety Club, it was called. And that's now still there. It's a beautiful, beautiful building, and it's an assisted living uh, community now. Uh, just to give you an idea of what it was like for that little town, there must have been uh, eight or ten different taxi companies uh, because the people there with tuberculosis obviously didn't have any cars. And uh, that was another experience I had right out of high school with driving taxi, <laughs> which was <laughs> was quite a thrill. Because there were, you mean around town or, or uh, to and from the resorts? No, around town, just stay on calls. I mean, I'd just gotten out of high school and you couldn't get a chauffeur's license, so-called, till you were 18 and had a picture ID on it way back then. So this other kid and I got a job driving cab. I mean, they had brand new taxis, you know, and uh, our family, most of them didn't have new cars. So boy, we were at the top of the food chain then, you know, driving around in new cars. We never went home. There was two phones in the taxi thing. There was cots in there. You could sleep on the cot. And anyway, uh, that was the most fun job I think I ever had. But anyway, that's what it was like growing up in Saranac Lake. Uh, the movie theater at that time would have two features and uh, the newsreel plus a plus a, a cartoon 
I mean, you go in there on a Sunday afternoon, you couldn't see when you come out, you'd been in the dark so long, you were probably in there three hours. And people used to say, but it was, and it was a huge, beautiful theater. The William Morris Agency, which is still the biggest theatrical agency in the world, world had built a camp on Lake Colby, which is, is still there, but it's called Camp Intermission. And uh, so the theater there had a lot of live shows that William Morris would bring up vaudeville acts. But they, uh, people always said it was the quietest theater in the United States because the people with TV wouldn't cough because they didn't want you to know they had TB, and the local people wouldn't cough because they didn't want you to think they had TB. <laughs> so it was a... Isn't that a was, funny fact? Like, you wouldn't think of that today. I know, but it's, it's true. That. It's they were just as silent as it could be. <laughs> you had to cough, you had to run out to the lobby. Oh, uh, goodness. So that's sort of what Sarnet Lake was like. It was, it was busy and active and full of people, and of course... They called it the little city in the Adirondacks because most small towns at that time didn't have 40 MDs living there. And a lot of, for want of a better word, sophisticated people coming up there to cure. Uh, it had the, it's a funny thing, the water treatment and disposal facilities. They used to have people from around the country come to see them because they were so well designed, because they were so careful because of the TB and the, and the, the things that were going on there so it was way ahead of its time that way and it was called the little city in the Adirondacks because they had really really nice shops because of this people with money who came there to visit their relatives now do people come by train or do they Most, how do they get by there? train a lot of them came by car I even had a story about the first automobile that came up here but uh, most of them came by train I mean that train station was I said it it would be likened to today's airport because there were 10 or 12 trains a day. I don't even know how they made them mix. And of course, because of TB... Where did they come from though? Did, where, did, where did the train originate uh, from? Uh, Albany? New York City, Albany, And Buffalo, they came through Utica? Utica? Yeah, through so, Utica. Okay. Uh -huh. yeah, and then uh, a direct line to Montreal. And uh, there was a, a junction in Lake Clear only 10 miles from Saranac Lake. And because of the TV. You know, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more on this story with Howard Riley. Stay tuned. You're listening to Making Life Brighter. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want to make a difference in the world? Join Making Life Brighter Radio to help create a free roam sanctuary for elephants in South America. Finally, there's a working solution for elephants on our planet. People often say they don't know what to do to help animals that are in danger. But now you can team up with Making Life Brighter Radio and your host, Winifred Adams, to give elephants from Brazil and Argentina the freedom to roam in a wild sanctuary in a remote area of Brazil. Free to socialize, heal, and live the life they were always meant to live. Your contribution will build the fences and the elephant care center for the massive free roam sanctuary and set these sacred animals free. Donate today and mention you heard it on Making Life Brighter Radio. Listen to the amazing series Live from Brazil, where Winifred speaks to CEO and board president of the Global Sanctuary for Elephants. To donate and for more information, log on to globalelephants.org. 
You voted show host Winifred Adams Writer of the Year for her Making Life Brighter Consciousness Columns, Entertainer of the Year two years running for her Making Life Brighter radio show, and Humanitarian of the Year for the third year running for her healing work and work at John of God. Medical intuitive and host of the Voice America Making Life Brighter radio show, Winifred Adams is your resource for wellness and consciousness training. A master healer for 20 years with a worldwide and celebrity clientele, Winifred uses her unique gifts to help those in need with physical, spiritual, and emotional ailments or trauma. Individuals and families may book private sessions in person or via Skype worldwide. Go to MakingLifeBrighter.com for more information. Enjoy Winifred's monthly articles with upwards of 30,000 fans. To buy music and subscribe to her Voice America radio show, visit iTunes worldwide. Follow along on Facebook at Making Life Brighter for her latest humanitarian effort to help move elephants in South America to a free roam sanctuary. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions, comments, or would like to make an appointment with medical intuitive Winifred Adams, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook at Making Life Brighter, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. Now back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams. And we're back. You're listening to Making Life Writer Radio, and I'm your host, Winifred Adams. And today we are up here in the Lake Placid area, and uh, I am with Howard Riley, and he wrote a wonderful book on the history of Saranac Lake. And I promised you all the history of this region, and it is rich with history. And we take for granted many of the things that we have today based on the way people used to live in the day and how different it is. So we were just talking at the break about what it's like without electricity and what <laughs> what would happen in our world when the electricity goes off because we're so reliant upon it. But, you know, in the day, everybody had a wood stove, and now we take for granted something like that. In many places, you're not even allowed to burn wood. In California, you're not allowed to burn wood. So... In your in your time here, you were writing for the newspaper, and you still write articles, right? Yes, I still write a weekly uh, history column. Now, wait, wait, we have to back up. Now, how old are you, Howard? I'm 86. Howard doesn't look 86, and he doesn't seem any bit like 86. He's he's probably doing some kind of stem cell thing on the side. We just don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well, people. Uh, well, this, never mind, this probably can't go on your radio show, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm in pretty good shape. Yeah, he's, he's, um, H- Howard is, as you'll see in the picture, um, full of life, full of energy, with a full head of beautiful white hair and lots and lots and lots of spirit that comes through his eyes, and uh, I noticed that the first time I met him, and so that's still true. Howard. Tell us about your newspaper, your writing columns, and, and then what you did for Saranac Lake. Well, 
I don't know if I did a lot for Cernic Lake. I've held a lot of positions there uh, at different levels, and uh, I started at the newspaper <clears throat> pretty much out of high school. Uh, I didn't go to college. Uh, I started running a linotype machine at the newspaper at that time, and if you knew what that was like, you can imagine what it was like at the New York Times. So they had hundreds of them, but there was 99 keys on the keyboard, and you typed up and down, and it had to be cast in hot lead, all of the lines of type that you would read in the newspaper. Every single one of those was obviously typed by hand, but the reporters had to type the story in a typewriter. Then we had to retype it on a linotype machine. So that's too much to get into it, but that's what I started doing at the newspaper, learning it. And uh, then I became a part-time reporter because I used to correct stories that the publishers were writing because I knew more about the town than they did. And uh, I was so probably insecure that when the, one of the publishers, who actually his name was Roger Tubby, he'd been Harry Truman's last press secretary and had graduated from Yale. And anyway, so after I corrected a few of his stories just to be helpful, he came to me and said, uh, gee, maybe you'd like to start covering some of these meetings. And I thought he was being sarcastic. I said, no, no, I, I was just trying to help you. I know that, he said, I'd like you to start covering some meetings. So that was my first experience. Uh, and I, so I would cover political meetings at town board and village board. And, uh, and and then you went on to become mayor. Then I went on to become mayor. Well, I went on to become a full-time reporter and then became editor of the paper. And yeah, I just wanted to be on the village board. I first was elected a village trustee. There's four trustees and a mayor. And... Uh, I just, since I'd covered them so long, I just thought it would be fun to do a two-year stint as a as a, an elected trustee. After that first year, the mayor was appointed postmaster, and there were all appointments all over the all over the United States, and there were just political jobs. That's, even if you'd never seen a stamp, you could be postmaster the next day. But anyway, the other four people on the board, uh, or other three besides myself. Well, the deputy mayor worked for a telephone company, and they all had jobs, and uh, so they wanted to appoint me mayor. I really didn't want it. I was like 31 or something, and I looked about 12, and uh, but none of them could take it. So after one year as a village trustee, I was appointed mayor. <laughs> And, uh, That's fantastic. I know. So I said then later I was there. That was 61 or 2, and I was mayor until 68, and I decided not to run again. But I always tell this supposed to be a funny story about being in a small town. As editor of the Daily Paper and mayor, I could write an editorial every few weeks saying the mayor is doing a great job. We ought to reelect him. <laughs> Uh, so, I love that. And then, uh, you know, I was deputy supervisor of the town of Harrietstown. New York State has a funny sub uh, uh, government subdivisions. You know, it starts with an incorporated village, then the townships are different, and they have an elected board. Of I'm on the town of Harrietstown board now as a councilman, and I have been deputy supervisor. Uh, of course, I've been on the zoning board, the board of the Adirondack Scenic Railroad, the the board of the of the health and medical center, uh, the chamber of commerce, just all of those things that I've done throughout my life. I was a city manager, village manager here for five years. I seem to do everything five years at a time. 
Now, how did you get involved with the Olympics? Well, I had owned a business in Saranac Lake, and uh, I had covered all of their Olympic bids sort of forever as a reporter for the paper. So when uh, we were all in, well, first of all, I'll tell you quickly how the Olympics came to Lake Placid. It was because they had the Olympics in 1932. It was the first Winter Olympic Games ever held in North America. There's only two other places in the world that have ever had the Olympics twice. Sinsburg, Austria in 1964 and 76, and St. Moritz, Switzerland in 1928 and 1948. So that's a pretty unique situation for Lake Placid. And it, here's the way the 1980, if I can make this brief, here's the way the 1980 Games came to Lake Placid. Lake Placid obviously had a very active sports council and a bobsled run and a 70-meter wooden ski jump, and they held World Cup events, and they'd bid on the Games before the United States Olympic Committee every four years, but they never got the nod from the United States Olympic Committee to go to Europe until the 1976 Games were awarded to Denver, Colorado, and they backed out. That's never happened before. It won't happen again because of Denver. They changed the whole procedure the way the games are awarded. It was an environmental movement there. They said it would ruin their city. They forced it to a statewide referendum. So in November 1972, the games were voted down. So there's three years left and there's nobody to host the games. So the United States Olympic Committee and the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, are totally embarrassed and totally ticked off. So Lake Placid finally got permission to go to Luzon, Switzerland in January 1973 to bid on the 1976 Games. And the press in Europe just loved them. Do you think they'd ever interviewed a mayor of a village of 3,000 people? It was him and five guys with him who were members of the Sports Council. And I went with that bid team in January 1973 as a reporter. And I can't help but chuckling because there weren't press conferences. These guys were just like talking out on the street, you know, BSing with somebody, and the press practically followed them around the rest of the time they were there because there was such good copy, as they say, in the newspaper business. I can remember one of the young reporters who thought he was a real hot shot was, said to one of the guys, well, you know, pure free digital, so the guy's got his notebook, and he said, are you going to use that old bobsled run that you built in 1932? And the guy said, yeah, why? It was all right last week when I drove a sled down it. <laughs> so he didn't ask him any more questions. <laughs> so, right. so anyway, the bid for 76 went to Innsbruck, Austria. But Lord Kalanen, who was president of the IOC at that time, after all the bidding was over, shook hands with all our guys and told them what a great job they'd done. And before he walked away, he said, it will be nice to see you fellows in Lake Placid in 1980. So that was the first inkling they had that they must to listen to him. Well, there wasn't anything they could ask him. They didn't, couldn't answer about it because they did all the things that you do in the Olympic, Olympic Games. So they bid the very next January 1974 and were awarded the 1980 Games. As soon as I got the bid, I quit the newspaper. I got, well, I got a job over here. It was like winning a job on a TV show, I swear to God. And my title with your picture on it was called Accreditation. Your picture and your job title and mine said director of the president's staff. So I always kidded people. I said they thought it was President Carter, so I got a lot of free beer. <laughs> and uh, But what I really did, and 
I said, fella, they just discovered, they knew as they started to learn what had to be done, they had the 12 official reports to the IOC over the next years on construction and all the things that were going on. I wrote every one of those reports. They had to be in French and English. I had to learn French in two weeks. No, I hired a translating company from, uh, <laughs> from Montreal. Uh, I said they were books. The cover was designed by an artist in color and architectural drawings and also, but all I had to do was write the copy and all the stuff. And there was an engineer on every construction venue. I'd get them to write that up and I'd put it in plain English. I got to deliver some of the reports to Switzerland. I told people the kicker for me was we had six little boys and five of them eventually played hockey. One played for the Holland national team for one semester. Uh, youngest one to figure skate, he ended up a soloist with ice capades. So the point of all that was Ford Motor Company was the official car of the Olympics. I got a brand new Ford station wagon. I'd never had a new car in my life up until then. So that was my stint with the so Olympic it, Committee. It beat the taxi out. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, fantastic. And what did it mean to you at the end of the day, especially after the win? Oh, I mean, you couldn't get out of the arena when the, when the uh, hockey, U.S. hockey team, average age, 22 years old, beat the Russian team. They were probably went old, but they were probably in their later 20s. They're all members of the Russian army, and that's all they did was play hockey. There was no professionals in the Olympics then. They'd beaten this team in New York City a week before or 10 days before, like 9 to 2 or 9 to 3. So that's why it's still considered the greatest upset in sports history. And for you, what did it mean to you? Well, I mean to be part of it. Uh, we couldn't get our breath when when that whistle blew and it was the end of the game and we had beaten the Russians. I mean, I'd watched all my kids play hockey and been involved in it for forever. My highlight for hockey was that after we were at Olympic bid, I might get off the track here again, we were at, we were at Olympic bid in New York City, bidding for the games in Denver this was 1967, and we're all bidding. We're all at the Roosevelt Hotel with our delegation, led by Governor Rockefeller. That's when Denver won the bid, and here we were all those years later. Uh, and Denver backed out, you know. But it was it was so funny. And I was going to say the highlight of that, coming back after that bid about midnight, I said to the guy with me, I was I was mayor at that time. I said to the reporter with me, uh, wouldn't it be nice? If these people in New York City could see these little kids, we called them termites and the five-year-olds, now they're called mites, play hockey at Rockefeller Center. And he said, oh, that's cool, you know. Unbeknown to me, he wrote a story in the paper saying the mayor's working on a plan to have our kids play hockey in New York City. That's fantastic. We'll be right back more with Howard Riley right here on Making Life Brighter Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Do you want to make a difference in the world? Join Making Life Brighter Radio to help create a free roam sanctuary for elephants in South America. Finally, there's a working solution for elephants on our planet. People often say they don't know what to do to help animals that are in danger. But now you can team up with Making Life Brighter Radio and your host, Winifred Adams, to give elephants from Brazil and Argentina the freedom to roam in a wild sanctuary in a remote area of Brazil. Free to socialize, heal, and live the life they were always meant to live. Your contribution will build the fences and the Elephant Care Center for the massive free roam sanctuary and set these sacred animals free. Donate today and mention you heard it on Making Life Brighter Radio. Listen to the amazing series live from Brazil where Winifred speaks to CEO and board president of the Global Sanctuary for Elephants. To donate and for more information, log on to globalelephants.org. You voted show host Winifred Adams Writer of the Year for her Making Life Brighter Consciousness Columns, Entertainer of the Year two years running for her Making Life Brighter radio show, and Humanitarian of the Year for the third year running for her healing work and work at John of God. Medical intuitive and host of the Voice America Making Life Brighter radio show, Winifred Adams is your resource for wellness and consciousness training. A master healer for 20 years with a worldwide and celebrity clientele, Winifred uses her unique gifts to help those in need with physical, spiritual, and emotional ailments or trauma. Individuals and families may book private sessions in person or via Skype worldwide. Go to MakingLifeBrighter.com for more information. Enjoy Winifred's monthly articles with upwards of 30,000 fans. To buy music and subscribe to her Voice America radio show, visit iTunes worldwide. Follow along on Facebook at Making Life Brighter for her latest humanitarian effort to help move elephants in South America to a free roam sanctuary. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions, comments, or would like to make an appointment with medical intuitive Winifred Adams, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook at Making Life Brighter, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. Now back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams. And we're back live with Howard Riley, and he is telling us about the history of his involvement into the Olympic arena and uh, all the things that happened there. And he was telling us a great story just before we went to break about how the kids may or may not play ha, 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 in New York City, right? Right. So uh, as a casual thing, I said... Uh, it would be fun to, for the people in New York City to see these little kids play there. And, uh, and uh, one of the reporters, uh, if I'm repeating myself, wrote a story that I was working on a plan to make this happen. And I was a little annoyed with him because there was no plan, obviously. Uh, but I called a friend of mine who was working for Johnny Carson. This is the way things tie in that's so strange. 
I hired him as a sports writer to work for the paper when he was in college. He ended up working for Johnny Carson. I called him and told him about this. He said, that's a great idea. He said, here, call Rita Gallagher. She was the head of public relations for Rockefeller Center. So I'll just skip to the, to the game. The next February, our kids from Serenic Lake, New York, played hockey at the Rockefeller rink on, I think, February 15th. Uh, I, I can't remember the year now, 1968. And they had the biggest noontime crowd they've ever had at Rockefeller Center because these are little kids who are five or six years old. Rod Gilbert, who hockey players remember, he was captain of the, uh, of the New York Rangers, and the manager was Emil Griffith. They come over, Rod Gilbert dropped the puck. I gave a speech as mayor in front of that big, funny-looking sculpture at Rockefeller Center, and the kids' pictures are in the New York Times. They then had the Daily Mirror, the Daily News, so it turned out to be an incredible thing, and they did the same thing the next year. Ah, that's fantastic. See, it was like a, a fantastic inspiration and synchronicity all in one. Right. And this, the, the, another little sidebar to that is my oldest son was there who was probably 13 or something. And he went to hockey school in Montreal. And Rod Gilbert was one of the instructors at that school. So it's a picture of them shaking hands at, at the Rockefeller rink. And so my stint with the Olympic Committee, uh, to get back to that, I said I, I wrote all those official reports. Of course, all the reports were done one year before the games. Every venue had to be completed, and it had to have a world event on that venue before it could be used in the Olympic Games. So the ski jumps, everything were built and finished. So I was assigned to the sports director. I like to call it as a troubleshooter. It sounds much fancier than gopher. But anyway... Uh, for that whole year, I just did whatever he wanted. One another little sidebar to that is that we had what was then called doping control, now called drug testing. We had that on a large scale in the Winter Games for the very first time. In Montreal, had held the Summer Games in 1976, and they had had doping control on a large scale for the first time. So we got some of their administrators down to help us with that. That's a whole other very complicated story. Uh, We'll get into that in the supplement to this interview. So for those of you that want to hear that story, you'll have to tune in to Making Life Brighter Later, and you can hear the supplement to that. So let's let's go back to Saranac Lake a little bit, because honestly, we could do this for hours. There's so much in in all the stories that you have and all the things that you've been telling me that are are so rich in detail. Uh, Let's let's go back to Mark Twain for a minute. What what was Mark Twain doing in the Saranac area specifically, and what, what's your story with him? Well, my only personal connection with Mark Twain, but to give you the setting, Saranac Lake, before the travel was so easy to Europe and all over the world, so many of the presidents, uh, not Teddy Roosevelt and, and Wilson, and all of them used to come and stay at Paul Smith's Hotel. There's a White Pine Camp that was Wilson's uh, summer White House. It's still open and and uh, visited. And uh, Saranac Inn was a huge resort. And uh, in here in Lake Placid, the White Face Inn was a huge resort. I have a picture of myself shaking hands with Nixon over there. And just all of these people, it was just a huge destination from all over the country because it's so beautiful here. And the number of lakes and, and all the entertainment uh, that's around here, but that little connection with Mark Twain, when you can make a personal connection, uh, <laughs> the caretaker's granddaughter and I were in high school together, 
So I got to talk to her about it, and uh, the housekeeper for Mark Twain used to write every day outside in a little cabin or gazebo, whatever it was called, and she'd, you know, brush off his jacket that he'd wear while he was writing, and she'd put cigars in the pocket because he smoked them constantly during the day. They said that it was like a soft carpet in the in that cabin by the end of the day, just with cigar butts. But so she'd tell the caretaker that when he'd take the jacket out to hang it out there so Twain, Mark Twain could put it on when he got to his cabin, she'd say, I put a couple extra cigars in there for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's so you funny. Got a few. <laughs> yeah, to have a, a personal connection with Mark Twain because the housekeeper was stealing his cigars. You know, <laughs> pretty clever, eh? <laughs> there's always a story like that up here. There's always something that's that's cute and clever, and people don't realize how many um, heads of state or or even celebrities over time or people that you know by name in popular culture have come up here or resided in the summers or, or taken this is like I'd like to liken this area to the St. Moritz of America right you know people of the of great philosophers would go to St. Moritz and, and stay by that lake and they'd write their poetry they'd write their whatever they'd go there it's the same kind of vectoring point it seemed right. to be that here. I wish I said earlier I can't remember the names of the people who came but it was called the Philosopher's Camp on Middle Cernak, and they used to come and meet there in the, the summer, all these famous people. And uh, it was a destination, as I said earlier, Einstein spent all that time here. But even today, I, and I said the presidents, of the, the former years used to come up all the time, but uh, the other President Bush flew into the airport here, President Clinton and Hillary and their daughter, flew in here, you know, Tom Cruise, uh, uh, there's just so many. It just goes on and on. Yeah, really. John Kerry just flew in here. Uh, it was a guy that was uh, Prime Minister of England for so long, uh, Tony Blair. Uh, he flies all around the world. And now Jack Ma, M.A., the famous Chinese, uh, well, he's a wealthy guy. He owns Alibaba in China, which is a counterpart to Amazon. He just bought a huge estate up here thousands and thousands of acres it was one of the old Rockefeller estates and he flies in here I think it may be a 747 and to uh, Lake Placid in, no I'm sorry in the Cernic Lake because we built long runways there uh, during the Olympics even though the official airport was actually Montreal but uh, we can land uh, that's why the Air Force One has landed there more than once and but Jack Ma is in there with his plane and people look at it parked over on the edge of the runway I think we had the biggest uh, little airports like this only make money by selling uh, jet fuel, uh, gasoline. And I think, I can remember the figure correctly, but I think his plane took five, $5,000 worth of gas to fill it to 20,000 gallons or something like that. Yeah. The biggest fuel sale they ever had. So anyway, there's people coming in like that all the time into that airport that you never hear of. Now, you know, I want to ask you one question that I ask everybody at the end of every interview. What makes your life brighter? What makes my life brighter? Well, in this case, you. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I think what, uh, what it is is my family. And uh, I have a lot of children and grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. And uh, that's really what... Uh, I look forward to when I get up in the morning because I know I'm going to see some of them and I talk to them on the phone or whatever. 
That's so sweet that you can share that and you they've stayed around here and they haven't gone out completely. Right, and they've gone and come back or something like that, but you're right, they're all they're all pretty close by. And, uh, well, this has been super. Thank you so much. And if you all want to hear a supplement with Howard, stay tuned. You can go to the website for that. You're li- listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and this is Howard Riley, and you'll have to get his book, and you can check out the website and where to get it. Thank you for being here today. All right. Thank you very much, Winifred. It's been a pleasure. This has been wonderful. Go jolly, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Making Life Brighter on the Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to join us every Thursday at 10 a.m. for information, inspiration, and education with leading experts in healing and consciousness. For more information and a complete show schedule, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. Making Life Brighter, successfully helping you feel better from the inside out. Go Jolly! Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.